Hi, everybody. My name's Sandy Beach, and I'm an alcoholic. I'll tell you, it was a pleasure to be here for just to hear Jerry's talk. I mean, uh, wow. This is a um, unique experience, and I'm sure those of you that have been coming back here realize that um, there's probably around the United States maybe 20 or 30 events of this quality that go on. I mean, there are weekends and get-togethers and activities that are fun and they're delightful and they have a wonderful place. But this has focus. And focus is a very important thing. If you take a magnifying glass and you want to start a fire with the sun out, you'll understand what focus is. Because you want that power to focus into one the smallest possible area. And that's what something like this is for, is to harness and direct spiritual energy so that it penetrates and causes awakenings. And then when that happens, we can say the sentence, the spiritual life is no longer a theory. It has become a personal reality for an individual. And until that happens, it's just a theory. And so that's why I love being around the kind of energy that we heard from Jerry. It is focused. And there was a clear message that was there the entire time. And it all concerned the movement of that energy through him causing the transformation that we are enjoying tonight. And so the, and there's nothing unique about him or me or anybody else. This is what a human being looks like when that type of transformation takes place. That is the automatic result of spiritual energy. And when it um, happens, that's why we call it a program of attraction. Because you are attracted to the energy. That's why it's hard to explain to someone else why you feel better when you come home from an AA meeting. Well, what did they do there? <laughs> you look so happy. What, what did they do? What did they do? What did they do? Well... There's about 12 of us, and we sat around the table. We all had coffee, and um, <laughs> somebody came up with a topic, and um, like um, resentment or something, and we just all talked about it, and then we held hands and said the Lord's Prayer and went home. Would you like to come? <laughs> and, uh, 
So you'll have to admit it's hard to describe. But it's wonderful to experience. So there's a great deal of difference between talking about something and having have, have something happen. I think I'm in the middle of a workshop or something. We're supposed to tell our story tonight. All right, well... Um, about a month ago, a guy mailed me um, an obituary, and it was about a German guy from Indiana. I don't know if there's any Indiana people here tonight. Oh, good. And um, this guy, out of high school, went into the tail end of World War II and was over in Germany at the very, very end, and came back and um, finished high school, went up to Alaska, and just raised hell for a year or so up there, and went back to the University of Indiana, where he graduated. And uh, upon graduation, he decided that the military had been fun, and so he went back and joined the Marine Corps and served in the Marine Corps for 28 years and retired as a major. And um, he was survived by one son and one daughter. And that was kind of the gist of the obituary. Now, what they left out was that this German guy saved the life of a guy named Sandy Beach, 42 years, two months and two weeks, he was my sponsor. And um, obituaries are like that all over the country where they leave out things, especially AA obituaries, because they couldn't put in all the things that individuals do. But we know about them, and we know when it says that they died a sober member of AA, that there are thousands of stories that would fill that newspaper with good news. And that's what this man brought to my life. He just came, I mean, this is how... The book God Calling, they, that, I mean, that's, that's just the way I see it. I mean, why would you choose the word God Calling? Well, there it was. It was December 7th, 1964, and I'm a shaking mess in the middle of my house with six kids and a wife, and they're all screaming, and just a total mess, and I'm a wreck. And all of a sudden... The title of that should have been God Calling. Now, I didn't know it was God Calling. Nobody knows it's God Calling. But if you want to go back and give a name to this particular story, that's exactly what was going on. (laughs) It was up there and it's going, Sandy, there's, I'm here to save you. And I sent this German guy. And you're going to do everything he tells you. And I opened the door and he filled the door frame. Not even a shadow came through the door frame. 
and I decided I probably was going to do everything that he said until I could get rid of him. And the funny thing was that I had had a few drinks stay down since I made the phone call about five hours earlier and had changed my mind (laughs) and had actually called the um, intergroup telephone answerer back and told him to disregard the (laughs) request. (laughs) Cancel my request for help. I was having problem making booze stay down and it really seemed like a terrible emergency but it was over and so he came and he talked and he talked to my family talked to me and then it came time when he said get in the car and we went to a meeting out in Manassas Virginia country country doesn't get any more country than that was um they had the, it was an odd fellows hall with space heater hanging down, and it was wintertime, and he had me right in the front row, and you know, remember those space heaters, they would just cut on and just go, and blow hot air right at me, and I remember just going, ah, and then the bathroom didn't flush, you just ran in and held your nose and tried to never breathe while you were going in there, and then came running out, and They were celebrating a big anniversary. They had um, people celebrating four years, five years. The group was, um, geez, I'd have to do the math. It was probably 15 years or something because they just celebrated 55. And it lasted almost five hours because they had a square dance at the end. And I had uh, been... I'd only been sober four hours when he came to my house. (laughs) I'm going to slide this chair up. No, I'm not. Can I bring this? I want to sit back in the chair. My back is... Thanks. Anyway, I'd been sober four hours when he arrived at my house, and now now I'm sober nine hours, and I am not happy, and people are... (laughs) Isn't sobriety wonderful? No, it's not wonderful. It's terrible. And they were all talking, and you know how they just, it looked like they're never going home. I'm at the door of this thing, and there's um, no place to run. There were no street lights. There was, it was misty, almost getting ready to sleep. And I'm I'm going to make a break for it, but where? You know what I mean? There was, and I remember stand, I was standing out there, and there was still something going on inside. And the reason I bring this up is that it was a very huge moment, and I never appreciated it for years. But I felt a hand on my shoulder, and it was an Al-Anon lady named Betsy Lynch, whose husband Jack, we became pretty good friends. And uh, I turned around. And she looked like an angel. There was something just glowing. And she said, come on back in. It's going to be fine. And I believed her. And I turned around and walked back in. And I haven't had a drink since. And I remember 
that the, that was it. That it was over. My resistance to spirituality was over in that hand touching me, and it was an Al-Anon hand. Really amazing. It didn't dawn on me for many years how powerful that had been. The touching of my shoulder and my believing in the humanness, the humanity of that woman. And I went back. And of course, even though those experiences have happened, we still have to go through the shaking and the withdrawal and the screaming and the little, little, little. But down in our core, there has been planted a new source of energy that is going to manifest itself. And we're unaware of it. Or we're aware of it but have no idea what it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, I feel a little better than I did. Or I'm not completely hopeless. There was that moment. And they're hard to recognize when we're new. So it's hard to realize that something spiritual is happening when you're having the heebie-jeebies like Jerry was talking about. I mean, it's just... But later on, on reflection, you understand and can see with great clarity exactly what was happening in those moments. And my sponsor's name was Bill Terwilliger, and he was one fine man. And I hope all of you are as lucky that you will find someone to spend 42 years, two months, and two weeks with in this uh, fellowship. We weren't always together, but in the very beginning, he took me to a meeting every night. We just traveled and traveled from Quantico, Virginia, that you had to really travel to get the meeting. So we'd have an hour in the car going and an hour at the meeting and an hour in the car coming back. And it was just amazing to just talk and talk. And then we had mostly speaker meetings. Um, I, I think speaker meetings are wonderful. Just what happened in the last hour has huge power. I think my sponsor said there were discussion meetings, but there weren't very many, and we didn't go until you had three months, and then you weren't allowed to talk. (laughs) The name of the game is listening, listening, which is a very foreign thing to (laughs) self-centered, brilliant, intellectual alcoholics. Listening is done with the eyes. You watch for the other person's mouth to stop so you can give them the answer to whatever is being discussed. <laughs> and uh, speaker meetings forced you to listen. And I remember avoiding listening. I would sit in the back doing anything to I would Okay, two speakers, 25 minutes each. That was what we had. And um, so I'd look around and look around. Maybe I'd even read the steps. But I didn't want to listen, actually, to the speaker. And so I'd be going, and I'd look down, God damn, only one minute went by. So then I'd go, so I talked to some other new guy, and he says, what I do, he says, I count the chairs. And I said, count the chairs. And he said, yeah, I sit in the back, and I count the chairs in each row, and then I count the number of rows. And then I just simply multiply the number of rows by the number of chairs, 
takes the whole meeting to do that. <laughs> Your mind is not as sharp as it is now, and uh, <laughs> multiplying 14 times 21 in your head is uh, quite a challenge. Anyway, I wanted to start at that point uh, because sometimes starting at the end is a good way to tell a story. It is, um, movies do it sometimes, and, and I kind of like it. As a matter of fact, lately I, when I'm talking about the steps, I say, well, I'd like to start with spiritual awakening. <laughs> start with the punchline. And then work back. And it's just another way of seeing now you know the ending. And it, it's amazing. Knowing the ending sometimes can change the process. Wow, this is, this is really going to lead to that? I'm going to knock on this door and make an amend? And it, that's where this is going? You, you understand what I'm saying? That the, the, the awareness of the ending can, can also be powerful. So now that I've told you the um, most recent event, I'll go back to uh, just a thumbnail sketch of my particular upbringing, which is on the other end of the United States, diagonally across it up into New England, into New Haven, Connecticut in the 1930s. And a small family of four, my sister and I, my mother and father, and... um, My father graduated from college and went out as an engineer building a bridge up in Albany, New York. The only problem was it was 1929, and he only worked about three months, and then nobody was working. And so he and my mother were the um, in the middle of the Depression and, and, and got all the psychological perspective that a depression gives you and I and you could see it years later I mean you really developed a self-sufficiency and a reliance and a strength and um, help your neighbor and there was just a whole philosophy and my father ended up coming back to the university in New Haven Yale and they gave him some kind of a janitor's job, you know what I mean, in the maintenance area. And with his engineering degree, he stayed there and retired many, many years later in charge of maintenance and construction for the university. But the interesting thing was that he was quite smart and came up with some very, very innovative um, maintenance things for buildings. And some of the engineering companies offered him very good money to come with them. But his background told him, you don't want to work out there. You'll be fired in about a week, so there'll be no work out in the private sector, so you have to stay here at the university. And it was amazing how permanent that was. Well, I'd like to go out there, but it's awful dangerous to go work for a company. Um. When I was about nine, there was a polio epidemic, and I remember I, I got it, along with a lot of other kids that were at this particular summer camp, 
And um, it, it caught everybody by surprise. So it, it, you were just taken out of the house and put in a hospital. And nobody could see you. And I remember some of the kids in there were, had the feeling their families had abandoned them and all of that. But somehow I just felt like, well, this is an adventure. And um, for me, the Sister Kenny treatment worked, and I got my arm and leg back working again and um, caught up with my grammar school class. Um, so you could see that I could handle things. I mean, I just, I had a good attitude. I was always kind of happy-go-lucky and, and all of that. But I had inside of me a alarm or a mechanism that was telling me that something was wrong, that something was missing. And I remember hearing a speaker talk one time that he was sure that a spaceship was going to land someday and two funny little men were going to come out and grab him and say, you're not supposed to be on this planet. We're going to take you where you're supposed to be. And he was going to go, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. There was so, that there's a, something inside of me that is not right. It's not complete. And uh, my mother was Catholic, so um, we went to the Catholic Church. My sister loved it. She thought the nuns were cute, the Latin was cute, the incense was cute, confession was cute. And we, I mean, she still goes, thinks it's the most wonderful thing in the world. I thought it was like a uh, German Auschwitz type of situation. <laughs> and the hoods and the whatever the weird costumes were and the Latin, and I just felt like they were there to somehow dismember me and just and then everything I read I saw how terrible it was sin sin I mean it seems like all there was was sin everywhere I went I was sinning sinning over here sinning over there and they could see me he we could see him sinning we could see him sinning God could see everything you know and so I couldn't stop sinning and they could see it. And so I just said, I'm screwed. This is this system. I'm, the more I read, the more I just was terrified by the whole thing. Nobody told me that. I told myself that. It's very important to understand that, that all of these events are really stories that we told ourselves. The event happens then I editorialize the event, and then I emotionally react to the story I just told myself. And the final story that I told that I mention a lot is the crucifix itself spoke to me. And it said, little boy, do you see this? And I, yeah, yeah, I see it. Well, this is what God did to his only son that he loved. <laughs> Guess what he's going to do to a sinner like you? And so that was the um, my God relationship. It was not a comfortable thing to think about. All right, so this is going on. I, I'm just walking around knowing I'm going to 
go some awful place, but in the meantime, you've got to have fun and pretend you're fine. <laughs> and that's what I did. And I, that's what I, I didn't realize everybody else was pretending they were fine. I thought they really were fine. But, um, and I was a very good student, and I was a good little athlete, and I got, went to a prep school pipeline right into Yale University. I got down there. I was also work construction. I was a steeplejack, and I earned a lot of money fixing, you know, church steeples and climbing up radio towers and changing light bulbs. I mean, you know, if you, I guess we like danger. That's all I can think, that we like to live on the edge, and um, I sure enjoyed it. But when I got to the university and saw the quality of people that were arriving from all over the country, I knew that I did not belong in this crowd, that this was a bad mistake. I'm there in my old dungarees, and these guys are coming in, and I just, uh, I just knew it was the wrong place, and I thought they were going to have a special assembly of all the freshmen one night, and the dean was going to point out in the middle to this imposter that was in their midst, and they were going to cleanse themselves and get rid of me, and then they would have the quality human being that they should have. And my roommates are telling me I ought to be drinking. You're in college. No, I'm not going to drink. I'm going to stay and get high grades and go out for athletics. But I was at a uh, gathering one night where I was supposed to meet everybody, and the people there were so mean that I couldn't even introduce myself. They just looked at me and said, do not come near us. We don't want to know you. And when people speak that way with their eyes, it is so powerful (laughs) that... that negative energy, they could just look at you, and you know... God, they don't even want me in the room, much less go over there and actually talk with them like an equal. And I never met anybody. I just, but there was a bar there, and I said, what the heck, I'll see what it feels like to feel good. So I'm 19 years old, having my first drink. And um, I had a couple and waiting to feel good. I didn't feel good, and I was halfway through the third drink, and I turned around, and that was it. Those guys were all looking at me, wanting to know me, (laughs) begging me to be one of their friends. The energy in the room was completely transformed into love. Everybody in the room liked me. Everywhere I looked, I just looked and looked, and these people liked me. Those people, can you believe this? And I felt like I had been transported to where I always wanted to live. It was just a place where I belonged. I intuitively knew how to behave. I, could, I had been set free from my own fear and anxiety, and my own natural creativity could come out for the first time in my life. I wished I had been drinking in grammar school. <laughs> this is amazing. I mean, I just sat there, and I was staggered by what had happened. And I'd only been drinking 10 minutes. That's a pretty big experience for 10 minutes. And so I went over and met everybody. Hello, 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 hello. You know, I just, I was still talking when they all left. You know what I mean? Hey, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? 
And so I went back to the bar and I said, boy, three drinks did that. I wonder what 20 will do and you know how sick you get. And I was just paralyzed with the um, effects of the alcohol. I spent the night on the floor in the bathroom, puking in the toilet, dry heaving, sweating, dying, lying. I stood on the, or sat on the bed the next morning. My head is split. My eyes are just aching. And Jerry described the mouth and just, oh, how, this is, I don't know if I've ever hurt this much. And a thought occurred to me, well, are you going to drink again tonight? Guess how long it took me to say yes? Bing! Of course I am. This death experience is of small price to pay for what I had. For what I had last night, as a matter of fact, I'd pay much more than this. You understand what I'm saying? It was um, whatever alcohol did to me, did for me, was worth just about anything. Because I didn't want to live in the world, the sober world that I was in for 19 years. I just did not want to be there. It was too freaking painful. I wanted to live in this world, and if there was a price to living in this world, let's find out what it is. And I didn't know what the price was, but right off the bat it was, how about getting in a fight and go to jail and your teeth are knocked out? How about you're not showing up for class, they're going to flunk you? How about your parents don't want to talk to you? How about you're in a lot of trouble everywhere? Every time you drink, you get in more trouble. You fall down a flight of stairs, push your girlfriend almost out the window. Yay, yay, just one story after another. And if somebody had come up and said, don't you think you ought to stop drinking? I said, what? I mean, that was not going to happen. I didn't know this was how I thought I was just partying like the other guys. I thought I was the same as the other fraternity guys. Somehow I managed to graduate, and um, the Korean War was going on, draft. Everybody had to join the military, so a bunch of us joined the Marine Corps. And I um, got my act together and got down there. And, of course, you don't drink much then. So now I'm back in shape again, and I'm, I'm healthy. And the Marine Corps really meant a lot to me. It was the only place prior to AA where I felt I belonged. I was part of something, and I loved it. They somehow broke the ego. They broke the self-centeredness and made you become part of something. And, I, and I, it felt good. It was a tremendous freedom to be part of something instead of being something. And so I really fell in love with the Marine Corps right off the bat. And much more so when I um, signed up for flight school and went to Pensacola and became a pilot, a fighter pilot. And got married and started my career. And I got a regular commission so I could get my 30 years in the Marine Corps. And I really felt that... um, Luck had smiled on me because when I got out of uh, flight school, I had overseas, going overseas, and the war ended. So we're over in Japan flying high-performance airplanes and drinking. That was the big thing we did. It was um, 
before tail hook hit out in Las Vegas. You remember when the naval aviators got in all that trouble? They still don't party much around the happy hour. There was such a fallout from that party in Las Vegas. But we drank as a squadron. The colonel ordered the drinks. It was amazing. You did not get one on your own. You sat at that table with 20 other guys, and they had a big model of the airplane in the middle, and the colonel would call over the weights, get my boys, you know, it's like back in the days of yore, get my boys around a drinks. And um, the amazing thing was that the squadron drank as fast as I did. So I didn't even have to sneak a drink waiting for the next round to come. And I loved everybody in there. We all had nicknames. The colonel of the squadron was Trigger Long. And he was an ace in World War II. And I remember with three of us young lieutenants were sitting around talking to him one night. And we said, uh, Colonel, you got the name Trigger from when you were shot down the five planes? He said, no, I didn't really get it there. He said, I got it a little earlier than that. I was uh, drunk up in my BOQ room one night, screwing around with a forty-five. <laughs> And it accidentally went off and put a bullet hole through the floor of the guy up above me and almost hit him in the foot. And ever since that night, they called me Trigger Long. So it was... Um... But everybody had a name, you know, Snake and this and that. And um... God, we had some stories. I'll tell you one. I normally don't tell flying stories, but uh, this other guy, Zeke, Wood and I, <laughs> got in trouble when we were on a gunnery match. And uh, bad trouble. So when, when they do that, then they have to punish you for the... We were there for two more weeks competing with another squadron. And so we had to alternate being the officer of the day, which means you can't drink. And we had to do the range sweep. And what the range sweep was, you had to get up at the crack of dawn, fly out over the uh, Pacific Ocean off of Japan where we were going to be shooting and make sure there were no ships down there. They sent out stuff to ships to warn them, but sometimes fishing boats would be down there. So we would go down, and then you'd fly right over the fishing boat and rock your wings, and that was a signal, get out of this area, because it's going to be... <clears throat> but anyway, the, the hard part was you had to get up at the crack of dawn. So anyway, we were taking off, and this is the equivalent of an F-86. It was the FJ. And back in those early jets, you took off with a canopy open. So Zeke is the flight leader, and I'm his wingman. So he gives me the turn-up signal, and then he goes, when he goes his head, then you let your brakes go, and you both take off. So we're going down the runway, and I'm watching him. He's undoing his seatbelt and the shoulder straps. He's still taking off, but the shoulder straps are coming off. He's grabbing the bulletproof glass, and he's standing up in the plane while he's taking off. <laughs> and eventually the wind pressure got so high he had to sit back down in the plane and then I saw him shut the, we shut the canopies, I forget where, 500 feet or something, and then later on he's putting all the shoulder straps back on. Sorry, Lee. So I, I, we wait till we get back and um, I said, Zeke, <laughs> What was that? And he said, well, he said, I started down the takeoff roll, 
And somebody had left the low-frequency AM radio on Armed Forces Radio, (laughs) and it was on. And, of course, when Armed Forces Radio comes on to start the day out, it plays the Star Spangled Banner. (laughs) He was being a good Marine and was going to stand up at attention. So I just want to give you a flavor of how much fun it was to be around these guys. I mean, we really flew hard. We really were good, but we played equally as hard. So it was, a, it was an amazing tour. And um, halfway through it, uh, one of the majors came up and told me that he thought I was really a good pilot. And he hoped to get a squadron and get a guy like me in there. And he looked right at me and he said, but I wouldn't let you drink. And I, I just didn't know what he was talking about until I got to AA many years later. And what he was talking about was that even in the middle of 20 heavy drinkers, my drinking scared him. Alcoholics drink with a, an intensity level that <laughs> scares heavy drinkers. I mean, <clears throat> so they saw a difference. Anyway, we went on. We had six children. I I did all kinds of things in the Marine Corps and ended up as a photo pilot uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'd learned how to fly the F-8 and um, was a captain. And my flying career was coming to an end because I was experiencing withdrawal symptoms. I needed a drink. Sometimes I'd need a drink so bad flying that plane I'd feel like ejecting. I mean... I didn't, um, you can't drink for 12 hours, and so you go without a drink for 12 hours, and you are not fit to drive a kitty car, <laughs> much less fly um, a plane like that. So I would fly with my hand on the ejection seat. I was doing, I didn't know what to do, and I just kept doing it for nine months. I got back in there every day and went through those nightmares of, um, not knowing what to do, what is wrong with me, and I'd sweat and feel like I'm going to pass out, and just hyperventilating. It was a nightmare, and I just kept going. I didn't know where to go, and there came a time that we had two types of airplanes, and the second type held two people, and there was a hurricane, and we flew the planes off to another base to wait for the hurricane to go by, and then you get drunk for three days, and then you fly the planes back. And we were flying back, and I could not stay in the plane. I think we had another hour and a half to get to Cherry Point. I was going to get out of that plane, I was, and it didn't have ejection seats. You had to go out of chute. And I was going to go. I was going to just jump out. And I decided to declare an oxygen emergency and told the flight leader, I have an oxygen problem, we have to land. And so he has to go, you know, okay, okay, so they pick a field nearby. We went down and landed, and of course there was nothing wrong with the oxygen. And so the next day I went up to him and I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And that was uh, it for my flying. Well, I was in Brentwood um, a month ago, not even, maybe three weeks ago, speaking at the Brentwood group out there. It's an amazing group. And uh, June G., who speaks around the country, had a friend coming up a lady friend who was getting a 30-year chip. 
and she was feeling a little bit ill, so her husband drove her up, and her husband's not an alcoholic, and he's been to a few AA meetings, but um, he just came along to drive her up and was going to have coffee and then pick her up afterwards, and she mentioned Sandy Beach was leading the meeting. He said, I think I know him. Let me talk to him. So they pulled me outside about five minutes ahead of the meeting. This guy looks at me, and he goes, let's see, in 1962... You were flying an F3D2Q on a cross-country after a hurricane evacuation, and you declared an emergency due to oxygen problems, and we all landed, and um, you never flew again. And I said, how the hell do you know that? He said, I was in the plane with you. (laughs) And... um, I would have, I, I, that, my memory was that we had four pilots and four radar guys. It turns out we had eight pilots because everybody wanted to go on the Huravac and get drunk. And he was a new guy in the squadron and he retired about eight years ago as the second senior pilot at American. And he filled me in on uh, part of my past. I had only been in that squadron about um, six or seven months. And this was a very high-level squadron. They had no lieutenants in it. There aren't many squadrons with no lieutenants. There was all captains, majors, and two lieutenant colonels. It was the photo recon during this high, tense era, uh, era. And when this happened to me, and I ended up going off and being evaluated and becoming an air traffic controller and never flying again and, you know, just lost all my status. I assume that those guys, as I left, said to themselves, are we glad to get rid of that piece of crap? I mean, I could feel it from everybody there. They were nice, but I knew that they were really glad to get rid of this second-class piece of junk. And this guy, Jim, he said to me, did you know how popular you were in that squadron? Do you know how hard everyone in the squadron tried to find a way to keep you flying? Man, they did everything for you. And I felt so grateful that 40 years later, 45 years later, I got that part of my story fixed. And went back and took out the old story and put in the new one. Now, if you're new, you may not know you can do that. (laughs) You can go back and take out part of a story and put in a new part? You can go back? Really? Well, let me tell you this. If you were to listen to talks that I gave when I had about 10 years and compare them to the talks that I give today, today I had a much better childhood than I used to. How could you have a better childhood than you used to? What is your childhood? This is very important to understand spiritually. Your childhood is the story that you told yourself about your childhood. There's what happened when you were a child, and then there's what you thought happened when you were a child. 
when you editorialized about the events. Sandy, yes, sir. Oh, go ahead. Bernard Hahn, call your wife. It's an emergency. Sorry, Sandy. Our blessing, Bernie. I'll talk more about the story aspect tomorrow. It's really getting into workshop material, so I'll just finish with um, I ended up as an air traffic controller for the last two years of my drinking because that's what the Marine Corps decided was appropriate for a man who was in such bad shape he can't fly. And I was back over in Japan. I um, now didn't wait 12 hours to drink, and I drank around the clock. And I lost uh, almost 50 pounds due to malnutrition from what I weigh now. I stopped talking with my friends. Uh, Didn't even go to happy hour. I would stay in my Quonset hut, drink vodka, and we had an explosive ordinance, um, not explosive ordinance, a special weapons guy in our Quonset hut, and they use a lot of grain alcohol in making special weapons, and he had five-gallon can of that in the hut. And when I was out of vodka, I would just sip a little out of that five-gallon can. And in the course of the year, I emptied it, just sipping you know what I'm talking about? You, just, you think you're just every so often having a sip, but you really, it's just. So I, I, and I tried to um, get my nourishment from soup or juice. And mostly I was in sort of a nightmare state. Just get me through the day. Okay, I'll go do this, I'll go do that. So I don't know how I got through the year. And I was in a, in a squadron then that, that um, where this air traffic control unit was, and there was a lot of wonderful guys, and I have very funny stories about that. But after I got sober, maybe 10 years, I ran into some of those guys who were at that time captains, and they retired as colonels. And they, we, we got together, and I told them about AA, and they were so happy that I got sober. And, and they were so happy that AA made me happy and I had my life back and all of that. Because people liked me, but they couldn't help me. And they looked me in the eyes and they said, you know, we knew you were dying and there wasn't anything we could do for you. Now, the Marine Corps goes back to get their dead, even if it costs more lives. And to have 10 officers say, we knew you were dying, there wasn't anything we could do for you, shows you the power of the disease of alcoholism. That they said, even we have to let them die. What a statement. And that was before we had alcohol programs and and all the intervention that we have now. So anyway, when I got back to Quantico, Virginia, and was in a school and had a very good job, um, I had a... No, I didn't have a good job then. I was in the school and I had a seizure. Went off to the hospital to see what caused the seizure. 
And about a week in, without drinking, I had the delirium tremens, and the CIA was trying to um, break my memory. I was, they were coming in the room with memory tests, and if you flunked three of them, you were going to be locked up forever. And I was just frantic. And, of course, none of it's real, but it is real when you have the delirium tremens. It's extremely real. And I kept flunking the test, and I'd go, let me take it over again and over. But then they would change everything. And uh, so I guess I ended up screaming, and they put me in a straitjacket and locked me up for six months. And that was where I got myself by running my own life. And in that nut ward, I heard about AA. And so when I got out, even though I started drinking again, even though they told me if I drank, I'd lose my career, um, I did call AA. So I thanked that mental institution and the AAs from Bethesda, Maryland, who snuck a meeting in there uh, for putting me in touch with this. Both my sponsor and I had been through that type of thing, and so when we came up for promotion to major, Neither one of us made it the first year. You get two tries or you're out. And the second year, he made it and went on to retire as a major, and I didn't make it, which I considered very unfair. I went to a meeting every night for two years. I sponsored people. I made coffee. I went to jails. I read the book. I did everything that was asked of me, and this new loving God just crapped all over me. And he had me get thrown out of the Marine Corps, and here was six kids, me, my wife, and we're broke, and we're out, and we don't have a job. Thank you, loving God. That was my view. Thank you for nothing. And you should have heard me at meetings. Anybody got a topic? (laughs) Yeah, I got a topic. Getting thrown out of the Marine Corps. Well, Sandy, that's not a good topic. Yeah, getting thrown out of the Marine Corps, that's a topic. And we had the stupidest people up in Washington. One guy said, oh, thrown out of the Marine Corps, say the serenity prayer. (laughs) Next guy, double up on your meetings. You got lots of time. Work with new people. Get your mind off of yourself. Mm. Say the prayer of St. Francis. St. Francis was a Marine. You know, that was the type of thing. I remember going home that night and I said, you know, I don't think I phrased the question right. Because I thought somebody would stand up and go, what? You're, you're being thrown out of the Marine Corps? You mean you're available? Listen, I have this large corporation. I'm looking for a senior vice president. If we gave you, say, 50000 a year, and this has been a long time ago, a company car, now there would be some AA support. I didn't hear any of that, and I heard this serenity prayer. I came back another time when I was going through a divorce. I got the same advice. Came back another time when I was going through bankruptcy. I got the same advice. Serenity prayer. Double up on your meetings. Go to the eating meetings. Get free food. That'll help you while you're broke. (laughs) 
Say the prayer of St. Francis. He took a vow of poverty, so can you. (laughs) So what was beginning to form was there's one solution for all problems. And that was starting right there. So anyway, trying to find a job and I'm doing all those things and couldn't get rid of the resentment. That was just too big a thing with this new God. And I tell this story a lot. Probably three months later, I'm reading a story in the Washington Post. Marine Corps instruction team from Quantico that I was on. We flew around the country putting on big shows about the future of the Marine Corps. They were about eight hours long. High, high profile thing. Marine Corps instruction team killed flying into Denver to put on one of the shows. If um, Mr. Self-Centered had had his way and life had been fair and there was a loving God, I would have been promoted and on that plane. And I remember going, well, actually, that does change it a little bit. uh, (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then I knew that God knew I read it. And I squirming around. Well, if you just told me that was going to happen, I wouldn't have been complaining so much about it. <laughs> and somehow I put one foot in front of the other and tried all kinds of different jobs and selling and real estate and stayed right on the edge for about 17 years of sobriety. I mean, with the eight of us. I mean, right there. You know what the edge is? <laughs> the battery dies in your car, so you've got to wait three days for payday to get the battery. You know, credit cards weren't really in yet. And it was, uh, oh, they're going to cut the phone off again, but it'll be back on in two days. You know, right, right there. And, um, and then I ended up with a career with the credit union movement, which is a wonderful group of people, and I was a lobbyist for them for 20 years just got the job off of a fluky interview. One Marine guy told me about an agency with a Marine general that headed it, and there was a retired Marine colonel lawyer who was looking for a congressional liaison. I said, what's that? Well, you got to know all about Congress. Oh, oh. And all about banking. Oh, oh. So anyway, I go over on the interview, and um, I'm telling this guy, you know, one Marine officer to another, and yes, I can do the job. <laughs> and I really didn't have what they were looking for, and he's, um, it's just about over. And he said, by the way, why would you leave the Marine Corps? And I'm like, God, I really need this job. <laughs> and I don't know what made me say it, but I said, I got thrown out for drinking but I've been in AA for 10 years, and I know I can do this job. Oh, we'll let you know. And boy, two weeks later, the personnel office called. Do you want the job? Yeah. And I went in there and uh, met all these young lawyers that were, we were in the general counsel's office, and they told me that the general was testifying in front of the banking committee in four weeks on a very complicated banking bill, and I was going to write his testimony. And I said, what's testimony? <laughs> well, oh, my God. There was, um, 
book on the desk. They gave me an office with the desk and some uh, bookcases, and there was a book lying on the thing, and it was called The History of the Credit Union Movement by Moody and Fight. So I picked it up and I started reading it. And the credit union movement was started by a philanthropist in Boston named Edward Filene in Filene's department store. And he donated a million dollars to start these things that he saw in India so that his employees could start saving money and borrow it and have their own thing because banks wouldn't loan to the little guy. And he said, we got to get this over here. So he got this lawyer named Bergengren who was just totally consumed with spirituality. And he connected the principles of this movement to the spirituality that he felt. And as he laid out the laws that were to govern this new idea, it was filled with spirituality. And as I read the book, the principles that they were trying to live by I absorbed because they seemed very familiar. And so when the legislation came and you wanted, they wanted opinions on whether we were in favor of this or not in favor of that, I just found myself taking the principles of the book that I had just read and I understood all this and I just wrote, this is, we definitely don't want to do this because it would violate this principle, this principle, and this blah, 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 blah. Um, and sent it all in to the general. And the, they said, this guy, he said, he eats people for lunch. He's the meanest guy. His name was Herman the German. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden, the word came from his secretary. He wants to see you. So I went in there, and he looked at me, and I hadn't even met him yet. And he said, did you write this? And I said, yes, sir. Said, this is great. Now, what are the odds on that, that I would pick that book up that would show me what principles to use? And it turned out I was, this is what I was great at, was writing this kind of stuff, speeches and, and all that. So I wrote for 20 years and retired. And The colonel and I became pretty good friends because he was about my age. And I was down his house one night after I'd been there about five years. And he said, did you ever wonder why I hired you? And I said, yeah, I sure do. <laughs> he said, I just wondered what it would be like to work with a guy that honest. That's what he said. So I'm not telling anybody new or anybody what to do when you're on a job interview and somebody says, how come you have no employment history here? <laughs> I'm just telling you what happened to me. You can run that by anybody that you want. And um, so what has happened to me is beyond description, and I'm going to talk about it tomorrow. The, um, the experience in Alcoholics Anonymous makes being in a fighter squadron Nothing. By comparison, the immensity of what happens here is beyond description. It is such a 
amazing event. It is why we were born. The point of our lives is to have this transformation. The point of everybody's life is to have that transformation and to solve the mystery that's inside of everyone of what is this that says there's something isn't right? What is that? And there are many people telling us how to fix it. The whole free enterprise system says, you know that thing inside that says everything isn't right yet and you're not there yet? You haven't bought enough of this. You buy enough of this and it'll fix it. And um, William James says, that's what churches are telling people. You know that thing? Come on in. We can fix it. And they, they have the answer, but not like we do. And the answer is, we have a spiritual void that is calling to us to fill it. And um, AA has the answer. AA has the guides, it has the path, and it has the answers. And so when we arrive here, we think we're going to not drink. But after you come around a while, you realize that that is barely the doorway in. That what's going to happen is you are going to be transformed into who you really are. We are going to become aware of the spiritual reality inside of us. And so I'm going to close with this. Because I think it's been experienced in the last three years, I've had more things happen on a spiritual level than the first 39. So there's a lot of wonderful things. And we wonder, well, Sandy, describe some of the spiritual experiences that you've had. Well, I'm going to tell you one that uh, you could have with me. If you will, close your eyes and just feel your breathing. Just take a breath and just, just feel what it's like to go. And I'm going to tell you what that is. That is God breathing through you. You can have 50,000 spiritual experiences every day. That is exactly what that is. That is God breathing through you. And that's why the breath has become such a sacred symbol in all kinds of spiritual paths. The sacredness of the breath. And it's, it is so apparent to me now that that's exactly what it is. And if you can even sense that, even if you're new, if you can feel just the smallest amount of that energy you will understand um, that there's something huge going to be revealed. Revealing is the method in which everything happens. And that's why our literature talks about more will be revealed. Your job is to prepare yourself so that the revelation can happen. This gift of a spiritual awakening that 12 and 12 talks about preparing ourselves so that this can happen and that's what a sponsor and the steps and all of this they just get us so that it can happen 
If you're new, God bless you. The best of luck to you. Um, It's been an honor to be invited here by my dear friend Scott Lee, and I hope I did what he would like me to do tonight, and thank you all very much.